Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joha Show podcast. Today on the pod, the province introduces new rules, which it says will fast-track upfront zoning, leading to much faster housing approvals at City Hall. Will it work, or is it another example of Victoria bigfooting municipal governments? Plus, we continue with our series, The Next Million. Today we look at race and politics with our city growing by another million by 2050. What impact will changing demographics have on political discourse? And anything for fame. We look at a film that documents a new generation of influencers who navigate their way through the virtual wild west of social media. That's all next on the Jazz Johal Show podcast. Uh, let's get to our top story. Lots to talk about today. Housing Minister Ravi Kailan tabled new legislation that the government hopes will cut back on home building construction times by pre-zoning land. The bill would uh, also create a new amenity cost charge tool that would give builders and municipalities a more transparent understanding of the costs associated with a housing project from the get-go. Now, today's announcement comes after the provincial government tabled legislation earlier in the session that will allow developers to start building a minimum of three and up to six units on lots currently zoned for single-family homes and duplexes in municipalities with more than 5,000 people starting July of next year. Joining me now to discuss the issue is BC's Minister of Housing, Ravi Kela. Minister, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jazz. Thanks so much for having me. So why did you feel you needed this legislation when you've just introduced a, a, a massive piece of legislation that will change neighborhoods eventually as, as as it works its way through the system? Why did you feel you needed to bring this piece of legislation in now? Well, one of the biggest frustrations that I hear from uh, you know home builders uh, throughout British Columbia is the fact that uh, there's never cost certainty. You know, uh, sometimes they start with a project, they know what the DCC costs are up front, and then as they go through rezoning, uh, often what happens, and most people perhaps don't know, is that uh, a negotiation happens where the local government officials say to the builder, home builder, hey, we need you to do this, we need you to pay this cost. And so imagine going forward with a project, never really knowing what your cost is going to be, uh, and, and that uncertainty that comes with it and the delay that comes with that negotiation, sometimes it could be a year or longer. And so what we're doing with our reforms around housing are a couple things, Jazz. One, we're saying communities, go engage with people in your community. Make a community plan. Get an understanding of where the housing needs to be in your community. When you have that community plan, no more zoning hearings are needed because you've already engaged with the community. You already understand that. Now, as we remove the, the need for zoning hearings, of course, anything outside the community plan still needs to have a zoning hearing. But uh, for those uh, normal processes where uh, something fits within a community plan, the zoning hearings will not be allowed anymore. And so local governments have been, you know, trying to find ways to build community amenities like police stations or fire halls through that negotiation. And so essentially what we've done with the tool is said, here's a new tool for you. Lay out what your DCC costs are in the beginning tell the home builder in the beginning what their cost is for uh, community amenities. Everyone has a clear understanding before they walk through the door with their proposal Mm -hmm. what those costs are. Local governments get money for what they need for the infrastructure, but developers and builders, they also get certainty on their costs. So I think this is a win-win, and it fits in with all the other legislation that we brought in. Do you worry, though, that, uh, you know, priorities can shift uh, desire for certain amenities in a community uh, by local people, local taxpayers can change. And local councils, if given the opportunity to decide on some of the issues, uh, would be much more flexible and quicker to react to local realities, local norms, local expectations beyond just sort of a, a blanket uh, uh, legislation from the provincial government. Don't you think that to a certain degree, you take away some of that local autonomy and the desire for councillors to be uh, addressing some of those local issues, which can evolve and change as well. Yeah, and, and we're not saying that they can, uh, that, you know, we're not picking for them what they can charge. Mm-hmm. We're giving them a list of things that they may uh, have uh, needs for. But of course, it's the community is going to decide what, what their 
uh, amenities are and what they need. And, and uh, you know, to your point, yeah, o- over a couple of years, they may say, you know what, that amenity isn't necessarily what's needed right now. Something else is needed. And there are provisions for them to, uh, to, to make that change. But what's key here is that we're building in a level of transparency where instead of those negotiations happening, uh, you know, in closed doors, uh, now it's very public. What are the amenities the community wants to build? What are the costs associated? No negotiating, no conversations. But if local governments, uh, you know, after a couple of years say, you know what, we want to adjust it, there's mechanisms for them to adjust it. So it creates a, a level of certainty and transparency, which mm-hmm. I think is much needed in the entire system. Do you worry that you're going to be accused of bigfooting local government, not just on this issue, but in the past legislation that you introduced? Do you worry about that? Well, just we're in a housing crisis, and, and I've said this on your show, and I'll say it again. Mm. Everybody since I became the Minister of Housing says, hey, we're in a housing crisis. We need housing. But nobody wants a housing in their backyard. How are we going to address this challenge unless we really look at our system and say, you know, not look at the system and say, can we make tweaks, but look at it and say, how could this be actually better? Mm-hmm. And the reforms that we're, we're making is about that. It's saying, you know what, the system is not working. It's not getting us the outcomes we want. We have to do this thing differently. I've been getting messages from folks across country, across the U.S., uh, who are saying, you know what, these are the reforms we need in our community. So it's cutting-edge stuff. It's, uh, I think it's, it's needed in order to address the challenges we have, mm-hmm. but it also works with local government. And uh, and that's why we have so many mayors standing beside us for this uh, announcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, when you made the earlier announcement in regards to start building a minimum of three and up to six units on a lot, uh, which are currently zoned for single-family homes, uh, we had Eric Woodward on, uh, the mayor of the township of Langley, another community that's very fast-growing. Uh, and here are some of the concerns he has expressed in regards to those. I just wanted you to listen to what he had to say. In the Willoughby area where we have significant new land coming into urban development, around 200 Street, um, we have other established single-family neighborhoods like Walnut Grove or Murrayville um, that are now going to be having this density imposed upon them with no planning process around schools, um, park acreage per resident, um, a number of other factors which are are involved in the overall community planning process. Um, If you simply come in and say you're now able to quadruple densities in these areas, I'm not sure how that's going to work for park capacity, recreation facilities, or schools um, that are full in those areas. So now how is that going to work? Uh, and no, no, he's speaking specific to his community. I'm not going to ask you to speak specific to, uh, specifically to a neighborhood, but the broad concerns he raises could apply to Vancouver, to Prince George, to, to Maple Ridge. What do you say to that? Well, I, I would say a couple things. One, uh, the mayor of uh, Langley Township is dramatically increasing DCCs in his community uh, to be able to have the money to address some of those infrastructure challenges. So I assume that the increases he's bringing in uh, are to address some of those uh, infrastructure needs. We are investing in infrastructure in, in communities. We've provided the, the township with uh, significant resources. Uh, we provided him uh, as part of Metro Vancouver with significant resources, which takes pressure off of their all their communities, whether it's the Iona Water Facility, 250 million, uh, TransLink, 500 million, the 911 uh, system reform that the Metro Vancouver mayors want to do. So we're providing dollars, but what we're saying to communities is it's not one or the other. I mean, it's I think it's a false uh, a sense of looking at it if you're saying, well, we, if we don't have all these things, we can't have housing. We can have them. We just need to do both at the same time. So we'll continue to invest in schools where we've actively acquired sites for schools in this community. We're expanding the existing footprints in schools in this community. And we, we know that work needs to happen in Surrey and Vancouver and communities throughout the province. So, again, there's a million reasons to say no to housing, Jazz. We're mm-hmm. trying to find ways to get to yes. Minister, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Jazz. Be safe. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. 
Hey, welcome back to the show as we continue with our series, The Next Million. The series has been looking at Metro Vancouver through the lens of another million people living here. Our population is presently 2.8 million people and is expected to hit 3.8 million by 2050. How do we accommodate these new residents and how do we work, live and play in a region with another million more people? Now, last week we had former Premier Christy Clark join us to discuss how we govern the region in 2050. We're also joined previously by Peter Dillon, the chairman of uh, Ocean Spray, to discuss food security for our region. And last uh, last week, our guest was Kevin Quinn, the CEO of TransLink, talking about how transit would look like in 2050 and our needs of our community. Well, in the weeks ahead, we'll also be looking at policing in 2050 and, of course, First Nations communities and their potential impact on Metro Vancouver over the next 25 years. Now, today, we we'll want to look at uh, race, demographics, and the impact uh, these uh, two issues would have on politics uh, in our city and our region. Now, last week, Immigration Minister Mark Miller was on this show uh, after his government tabled new targets for the next three years in Parliament, which call for the, for the number of new permanent residents to hold steady at 500,000 in 2026. Last year alone, 150,000 people moved to BC, the most in 60 years. Uh, immigrants uh, come from all over the world with a large presence from Asia here in uh, Vancouver. We are, of course, a multi-ethnic society with 52% of our population, people of colour. What does the future look like with another million people uh, here and how will it impact our politics and the involvement of many of these communities and, of course, race relations here in Vancouver? Well, joining me is a man who looks at demographics uh, when it comes to politics. His name is Kareem Alam. He's a partner at Fairview Strategies and a campaign director for Ken Sim and ABC Vancouver during the last civic election. Kareem, Welcome. Thanks for having me on again, Jazz. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, now, let's go back to the campaign uh, from a year ago, just for a moment here. When you ran that campaign for ABC, you've got a, a diverse city uh, like Vancouver. When you looked at your strategy moving forward, you got all this diversity, a massive Chinese population, South Asian population, uh, a gender breakdown, uh, all of those issues, socioeconomic. How did you move forward in regards to stitching together a coalition which eventually led to the supermajority for Mr. Sim? Yeah, uh, it's uh, important to acknowledge before I answer that question that today is the one-year anniversary of Ken Sim and ABC being sworn in um, as counsel. Um, it was a really special time for me uh, to, to, to see the first uh, Asian mayor, first non-European mayor elected in the city's history. Uh, we hit a lot of firsts. We had a very diverse slate, uh, first uh, South Asians uh, in a lot of categories, first Chinese, Mandarin, Taiwanese in a lot of categories. One of the things that happens when you start working on a campaign is you typically start putting together um, your policy, your platform. Uh, You start typically by doing polling and research. You put your campaign platform together and then the ethnic outreach becomes an afterthought. One of the things we recognized early to be successful in this campaign is that ethnic can't be the afterthought. It needed to be the starting point. And that's just based solely on the demographics. So 52% of people in the Lower Mainland are non-European. In Vancouver, that number is 60%. Burnaby, that's 60%. In Surrey, it's 65%. In Richmond, it's 86%. Those are the four largest cities in, in, in British Columbia. So your approach in building a successful campaign must consider the diversity of its people first. So the first and most important part was to assemble a slate of people that looked like and reflected uh, the city of Vancouver. Then having those people come with their ideas and their ambitions to populate your platform. Um, and that really was the starting point, um, and it really was successful. When you take a look at um, the last election results and take a look at the polls, the only polls that Ken Sim and ABC lost were the predominantly European ones. Uh, the predominantly Punjabi, South Asian, Chinese, Filipino polls were the ones that he won. Um, and he won a very sweeping uh, uh, election uh, election uh, 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 win. He got 19 out of his 19 people uh, elected on a slate. So that ethnic first approach um, is going to become increasingly more critical um, in future campaigns. I'll close off by just putting a little bit of this context. One of the reasons why I think the NDP provincially is doing so incredibly well mm-hmm. is – They've done a little bit of what ABC had done, is they've recruited a very diverse caucus. They have 11 Punjabi MLAs. The BC Liberal Party has zero. They have six or seven Chinese uh, MLAs, and the BC Liberals have two. And not only are these people MLAs, but 
they're also occupying very senior cabinet for portfolios when you're looking at Ravi Kalan and Rashna Singh and Harry Baines uh, and Nikki Sharma. Their voices are strong. The diverse perspective ideas that they are bringing to the table are meeting the ambitions of these constituents. Um, and it's translating into electoral success. So now add 25 years. Uh, we're at 52%, I think, uh, for the whole region in regards to diversity. Uh, what does that look like 25 years from now? Uh, more people living here. Uh, do we deal with race issues? Do we have race issues? Or is this society different in Canada compared to the United States? Uh, number one, uh, you know, I'm thinking back to even uh, when I was a young reporter interviewing uh, Jerry Adams, uh, who was the, the head of the Sinn Féin, which is sort of the, 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 um, uh, the political arm of the IRA. Huge Irish population. I could understand that 30 years ago. So moving forward 20 or 30 years ago from now, what does a city look like? A, do you think we'll have race issues, number one? And I don't mean that in a bad way. I'm just saying no society is ever perfect. Two, we're already kind of seeing some of these issues happening now. You've got a, you know, a, a referendum on whether Khalistan or Punjab should be in India, North India should be independent. We're not moving back as, as Sikhs, but we still want to have a referendum that's not binding. You have this issue in Israel at the moment. Significant amount of polarization among the Jewish population or certain members of the Jewish population and the Muslim population, at least on social media. I think generally the communities are pretty good about making sure uh, peace remains. But these things all are part and parcel of how we live with each other uh, and how we respect each other. It's hard for you to answer, but I'd like you to attempt to answer it. What does the city look like 25 years from now with what we are doing? So let's just talk about the demographics first before we get into the the policy implications of this. So uh, Federal Minister Sean Fraser is talking about 500,000 new immigrants to Canada every year. About 80 to 100,000 of them are going to settle in British Columbia and about 60 to 70 percent of them are going to settle in the lower mainland. Um, The vast majority of these new Canadians that are going to be coming are going to be coming from Asia, from China, from India. But increasingly over time, as we get closer to that 25-year mark, that number is going to uh, increasingly become African. Africa is the fastest growing uh, uh, population base on the planet. In 2100, it will be the most populous continent. What's important about that is just the age demographic. Canada's average age is 44 years old. Africa's is 17. Uh, So as we're looking at our labor force, whether it's construction, whether it's healthcare, uh, that young population is what we're going to be looking for uh, to to help sort of sustain our healthcare system and and our workforce. So it's increasingly going to start looking African, but in the immediate short term, it's it's going to look Asian. There's always been race issues in Canada, and there are current race issues today. And some of these things are enshrined in legislation. Uh, we have uh, an apartheidist Indian Act um, that Pierre Polyev, Jagmeet Singh, and Pierre Paul uh, and, and and Justin Trudeau all agree needs to be gotten rid of. But we're not taking the initiatives to uh, uh, to resolve some of those issues. We've got Bill C twenty one in Quebec, religious headscarf ban that is negative impacting Muslims, Sikhs, uh, uh, and people of the Jewish faith. And again. Um, these risk issues are going to become more frequent. Uh, they're going to become more emotional. Um, but the tide at some point is going to shift just based on the sheer volume of non-European people uh, that are going to start asserting their economic power and they're going to start asserting their political power on these debates. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we're speaking to Kareem Alam. He's a partner at Fairview Strategy. He was campaign director for Ken Sim, Mayor Ken Sim now, uh, and ABC Vancouver. Of course, they won that super majority. We're talking about changing demographics uh, in the lower mainland, what the city will look like in 2050 when we add another million people. Uh, Kareem, one of the things we've talked about is just, you know, we have so many different people coming from different parts of the world, and it is changing the demographics of the city. How do you think that will apply to policy? Let's, uh, you know, let's pick any policy out there. I think one of the things we've been talking about is natural gas and a potential natural gas ban in, in this city. And I was thinking, uh, I had the, I think the real estate um, association on, and and uh, they were not happy with a potential natural gas ban. It's just being discussed, debated. It's going to be going on for a while. Would something like that even be broken down by, you know, ethnic lines or racial lines? Absolutely. Uh, when you when you think about, you know, some of the biggest issues that, you know, public policymakers are grappling with, climate change is one of the largest ones. Um, but when you start to lay over that cultural aspect, which is becoming increasingly more important from a political and electoral success perspective, 
Banning natural gas might not be as popular as it might be just within European communities. You can't cook roti without an open flame. You can't make pita bread without an open flame. Shawarma, barbecue, Tex-Mex, uh, uh, there are cultural elements to our interaction with fire and those open flames. And those things will have an impact um, uh, on, 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 on policymaking and decision-making. And as elected officials start going out and making these pronouncements without actually thinking through um, some of the implications or doing the research in terms of working uh, uh, with those ethnic communities to understand their cultural ambitions and, and, and experiencing their culture, mm-hmm. they might find themselves on the losing end of an election. <laughs> it is amazing uh, when you think about uh, uh, something like that. All right. Well, let's go to the open line. I'm very curious as to what you have to say. Let's go to uh, James in White Rock. Hi, James. Hi, Jazz. Thanks for taking my call. I don't, I don't see the future going to be an issue with race. I think the issue and the conflict that we're going to have because of the way Vancouver is basing itself right now is going to be religion. When you look at, at the dynamic of Vancouver, Surrey, what have you, people of like minds all commune together, so they deliberately segregate themselves for comfort. So how, how are you going to square the circle of having entire communities from from one specific part of the world that are that are living there because they're comfortable because they share the same religion and the same mindsets, mm-hmm. and then they have to adapt to to uh, to get along with other cultures and other religions that they might necessarily have an issue with from their home country. James, thanks How for your call. I appreciate that. James is a very good point. Uh, uh, you know, you know, I grew up in the seventies, uh, immigrant to this country, grew up in the interior, uh, sizable. Indian, Indo-Canadian population, Sikh population, town that I grew up. But, you know, you were, you assimilated. You had to. That's the nature of what we, what we do. And today, uh, if you lived, well, if you lived anywhere in Vancouver, to be blunt, and, and particularly if there's large South Asian population, I think Surrey is an example, or large Chinese population of Vancouver, Richmond. I mean, you could technically, you'd spend your day not speaking English, right? You could do your banking, you could do your grocery shopping, uh, lots of things. You could spend a lot of time never having to speak English. So it does raise an issue of assimilation before these communities are smaller. Now these communities have reached critical mass. Is that something we need to concern ourselves with in regards to, you know, are we driving enough assimilation because these communities now are big enough where you don't have to assimilate to a certain degree? I love James's question because it fundamentally gets to the heart of what is a Canada? Canada is a country that has a constitution. 1982, Pierre Trudeau um, repatriated the constitution, and there are two fundamental principles in that constitution um, that we must understand, that religious freedom in this country is protected. Number two is we are a secular state. Um, There will be conflict. There will be people that will want to challenge for their own agendas, for their own reasons, those two principles. But collectively as a society, uh, we must reinforce the institutions, we must reinforce um, the legislation and the, and, and, and the cultural aspects that protect those two freedoms. Um, uh, I see those things being challenged. Um, I see them being challenged on a day-to-day basis. Um, and I can see it being convenient to sometimes overlook um, one of those two principles that I just articulated. Um, But I think it's imperative for Canada uh, to be a successful country, to guarantee religious freedom, but also at the same time to maintain its secularism. Yeah, but I think, you know, I see this, I always say judge immigration by the second generation, right? The the first generation with parents especially, uh, there is a tendency to be closer to those who are like you and like-minded. And and it in many ways helps with assimilation in regards to economic security these communities build. But that second generation raised here, raised in around a culture of, of Canada... Um, I think are very uh, protective of this country and its institutions. I Absolutely. see that in my son. He's 14 years old. Uh, uh, you know, uh, my father, when he emigrated here, hasn't been back to India since 1978. He's an Orthodox Sikh. Uh, yet I moved back there, lived there, <laughs> paid my taxes for a few years as a journalist before I moved to China. Uh, but I'm proudly Canadian and, and remain that way. And I always find even sometimes a criticism of immigrants that, that come today, the most harshest criticism are from other f- former immigrants. 
yeah. who say, you're not assimilating. And I always remind them, hey, they're probably saying the same thing about you 30, 40 years ago when you arrived. That's part of the challenge as well is you got to have faith in our ability to think that we've the immigrants who came here 40 years ago have assimilated. And they're hopefully going to pass on those values moving to the next generation, right? Yeah. Society's not homogenous. No religious group, no ethnic group that's coming to this country um, unanimously feels one way about any one thing. But the critical thing that we also need to understand is there are risks in taking on this level of immigration. That fast. Economic, uh, um, you know, racial uh, tensions. Social cohesion. Social cohesion. But there's also a tremendous opportunity. Um, Canada is a trading nation. Um, Our wealth as a country um, has been because we are a trading nation. Those connections that these people bring from other countries reinforce um, our leadership on the global stage. And to the degree that we can start reconciling with First Nations and settling title and treaty issues and we're able to get our resources and our auto parts and all, all the different parts to, 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 to Tidewater and to our economy, it's to the degree that Canada can be and will be the richest country in the world. Green Malone, thank you. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's revisit our top story. Today at uh, 3 o'clock, we spoke to a housing minister, Ravi Kelo, uh, as he tabled new legislation that his government hopes will cut back on home building construction times by pre-zoning land. Now, the bill would uh, also create a new amenity cost charge tool. That's government speak, if there there was one, that would give uh, builders and municipalities a more transparent understanding of the costs associated with a housing housing project from the start. Um, Now, this all comes, of course, after a previous uh, announcement by the government uh, just last month where they had table legislation once again that will allow developers to start building a minimum of three and up to six units on lots uh, currently zoned for single-family homes, depending on where they're located. Um, and, of course, they also legalize secondary suites and laneway homes across the province as well. Now, one of the things I did ask the, the minister at 3 o'clock is, with the accumulation of all this legislation, does he worry that he is bigfooting municipalities? Because at its core, a mayor and a council are the closest to let local residents. They're the ones who are going to hear about what is occurring in their neighborhoods. They'll be running into these people, not just at City Hall, but at the local grocery store. It is the very nature of municipal politics. They're the closest to residents, closest to taxpayers. So I did ask him about the worry that Victoria was bigfooting uh, local governments and local autonomy. Take a listen. We're not saying that they can, uh, that, you know, we're not picking for them what they can charge. Mm -hmm. We're giving them a list of things that they may have uh, needs for, but of course, it's the community is going to decide what what their uh, amenities are and what they need. And yeah, o- over a couple of years, they may say, you know what, that amenity isn't necessarily what's needed right now. Something else is needed, and there are provisions for them to uh, to to make that change. But what's key here is that we're building in a level of transparency where instead of those negotiations happening. Uh, you know, in closed doors. Uh, now it's very public. What are the amenities the community wants to build? What are the costs associated? No negotiating, no conversations. But if local governments, uh, you know, after a couple of years say, you know what, we want to adjust it, there's mechanisms for them to adjust it. Uh, that was uh, Housing Minister Ravi Kalon uh, speaking to us at 3 o'clock. Well, joining me now uh, is Eric Woodward. He's the Township of Langley Mayor, and he knows one thing about fast-going communities. Uh, Langley Township is one of those, that's for sure. Uh, and uh, he has been a good friend of this show and always provides good context for us. Uh, Eric, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me back on this one. Yeah, it's, it doesn't end, does it? So your thoughts, first and foremost, I know it's early stages, the devil's in the details, as they say, but your thoughts on the overarching uh, broad announcement by the minister today? Yeah, the transition to an amenity cost charge program, you know, for us is going gonna, is gonna to create some challenges around timelines and flexibility. Um, you know, those comments are interesting. Uh, the CAC, or the Community Amenity Contribution Program here in the township, already is public, already is transparent, already is well-known. Uh, we don't operate similar to Vancouver, where we try to do a per-negotiation, per-development. So we don't slow things down for years while we do that. Um, you know, do we, here we are again with this uh, one-size-fits-all approach when we're not even doing that. We can get an application approved in less than a year because we're not doing a process like Vancouver. And uh, here we are again 
I think uh, being essentially, you know, lumped in with something like Vancouver that can't get their act together on housing, and now we have to change the processes that are working very well for us and going to create a lot of problems. Um, one could argue that, well, if you're already doing your job, you, the legislation may not impact you. Do you think this, this, this legislation will have some impact on your community and the ability of City Hall, uh, its public servants and its elected officials to actually yeah. do the job? Yeah, Bill Bill Forty Six less so. Um, you know, it is going to create some some delays, and as we transition, it, there'll be some cash flow implications that we're going to have to address. We currently collect those fixed rate amenity fees uh, during the rezoning process, and if that's deferred until building permit, uh, there'll be some cash flow issues that that will have to be dealt with during a transition. Mm-hmm. It's the pre-zoning of land, so if we're required to pre-zone. For a single family uh, to be allowed to have six-unit apartment buildings by June, uh, I'm not sure we'll be able to transition that program on the same time frame. And it, the program on the pre-zoning of land combined with this ACC program, which I know the minister thinks addresses the issues, it does not address road and, and greenway dedications or how to secure park and school sites within developing areas like Langley or Surrey. And so, again, uh, you know, you've, they're, they're taking this Vancouver approach where everything is built out, and applying it in communities where it's not relevant and doesn't apply. What would you have done if you were in the if you were in the same position as the housing minister? What what, what would you have recommended? Yeah, I actually really appreciate that because we are working on solutions to present to the ministry. And uh, as I brought up before, you know, we haven't been consulted at all, and so we are sort of trying to put some solutions together. The obvious one for us is if we have a housing needs report that demonstrates we need to produce six to seven thousand units every five years, that we either meet those targets with a range of housing types, um, or then we have to comply with single-family zoning for six-unit apartment buildings. If we're able to meet our housing targets and meet the demand for housing in our community, in excess of our targets even, then why are these other measures being imposed upon us? And that's going to be our solution. The other solution is going to be exempting every new single-family subdivision created after 2020. Explain that to me further. Sorry, all single-family homes exempted after 2020, built after 2020. Yeah, because the well, the real challenge with Langley and Surrey is we're creating, uh, you know, a supply of some new single-family housing on compact lots that that the minister wants to have uh, four to six units on. Meanwhile, we're able to produce rural home, town home, and apartment buildings on all of this undeveloped land that we have here in the township, and, and Surrey has the same opportunity, and so. We're not able to create those anymore because the minister is going to require us to put six units on them. So we've asked if we're creating a percentage of our development and creating all the missing middle, why not allow us to also create a small amount of single-family subdivisions? We're not able to create those anymore. And so we would like to see an exemption for all new single-family subdivisions created after 2020, and that would mean we could then create those with confidence and while we create lots of townhomes, lots of row homes, lots of apartment buildings through the range of our housing needs, and that opportunity, that balance that we are providing for our own community and for the region mm-hmm. is being taken away from us. Do you think this is just done? I mean, I, I get the consultation or the lack of consultation which you bring up, but you know, Victoria just seems to be for broad provincial legislation. I understand, but housing is so personal in regards to need. Uh, in regards to where you put housing even in a community, right? These are issues that can go for years where you fight and debate. Uh, you know, I have a subdivision near my home that took 30 years uh, to get approved in Tawasson uh, because people are so committed to their local community. I mean, is Victoria the right place to actually solve some of the housing issues? I understand some broader issues they can handle. But when with what you're explaining to me right now, none of this works for you folks out in the township of Langley. No, and the thing is, we have such a great opportunity for the Metro Vancouver region because we're one of the last uh, large communities in the region to develop. So we have that 2,000 acres of urban land that we're creating new neighborhoods on, and we're not going to be able to create a balance of housing types anymore. We'll have to transition completely to townhome and row home and not have that balanced secondary suite or small single-family neighborhood mm-hmm. um, as part of that overall balance. And so I think you, you know, you, the, the question that pretty much answers itself, why not allow communities to meet targets within housing needs reports that are in the legislation and have us determine how we're going to create that housing and not determine that because Carisdale or Mayor, uh, sorry, the uh, City of Vancouver 
won't densify their single neighbor neighborhoods that are single family neighborhoods also have to be to be taken down this road when we can provide housing in other ways. Uh, Eric, as always, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Canadians spend more than two hours per day on social media platforms. Social media is becoming more prevalent every day, and influencers and those that want to be influencers are too. Influencing is an all-new career option that until recently didn't exist. Uh, Social media influencers build relationships with their followers through the content they share and interactions on live streams, comments, and chats. This in turn builds a great sense of community and ultimately gives influencers, influencers more influential power. There are challenges, however. A new National Film Board documentary titled Anything for Fame, looks into the ruthless attention economy of the internet. Young influencers gamble everything for fame and fortune. Anything for Fame ventures into the virtual wild west to profile an ambitious and somewhat argue reckless at times new breed of content creators. The film is directed by Tyler Funk. He uh, is a resident of Burnaby. Joining us now are social media influencers Stuart Reynolds, who goes by the online name Brittle Star. Stuart is one of those few influencers who has managed a successful career that has lasted over a decade and has helped uh, director Tyler Funk navigate the world of digital creators. Also joining us is Jake Hillhouse, an Ontario-based creator whose online persona is of a suburban prankster who is inspired by the Jackass franchise. Uh, Let's listen to the uh, trailer just for a moment before we get to our two guests. Take a listen. Internet fame is a real thing. Internet fame is a powerful thing. Now anybody could become famous. I started just pumping out content. We're for fun. I didn't expect to gain a following at all. We gotta come up with new ideas that are crazier. That's the direction that I kind of took it. Homeland Security and the FBI got involved and the repercussions were pretty severe. We live in a society where we're seen as objects. We just are. And it's like a lot of people don't want to admit it. My son's an influencer and I was like, I don't even know what that means. Are you getting a full-time job? They want something scandalous. They want a headline. If I'm going to go to jail, I'm going to go to jail for these videos. Just got to learn how to do it, and I'll be okay. It wasn't me up there doing it. I'm sure somebody else would be up there doing it. I was willing to, you know, do anything for fame. Uh, Jake Stewart, welcome. Thank you. Thank yeah, you for having me. Yeah, great to have both you guys here. Yeah, I was looking forward to this all day. I think it's a fabulous uh uh, documentary, and I think you've really hit on a topic that is really of the moment and uh, really talks about the broader conversation around technology uh, and how we interact every single day. Let me start with you first and foremost, Jake. Uh, did you always have a desire to be an influencer? Like, How did you get motivated to become an influencer? I think I'm a professional attention seeker, to be honest. Hmm. Um, I don't think you know, I originally wanted to be an influencer. I think it kind of happened by accident. It kind of started with skateboarding. I was creating these skateboarding videos with, you know, the the skate park homies and, and stuff, from, uh, people from my school. How old were you? I picked up my first skateboard at the age of 12. 12. And so we started posting videos to YouTube and... At the same time at 12. Yeah, 12, 13, 14, all the way into high school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, with skateboarding and like skateboarding culture comes with like, you know, mischievous behavior and stuff. So we'd be filming us skateboarding, but then we'd also be filming us getting kicked out of, you know, skate spots, getting in trouble with the police, getting in trouble with security and stuff. And I remember just like my friends from school who didn't skateboard loving that stuff. And so um, I think that's kind of where the whole attention seeking came from. But partially it was probably to be a little anti-establishment. If you're posting the videos looking for perhaps confrontation or interaction with authorities, how much of it was just the idea of being sort of anti-establishment? Yeah, I loved it. To be honest, I loved it. I mean, that was the whole goal at some point, yeah, was to see how far we could take it. Uh, Stuart, uh, you, on your own, you're an influential guy. I, I uh, follow you as well. I think you produce fabulous content. Thank you. First of all, very well produced. It's funny. Um, satire. It's well done. It's professional in my mind. Thanks. Um, you're at a different stage in regards to what you produce, what others produce. I mean, I'm, I, no, yeah. I mean that is it's just an analysis here. Yeah. So walk me through when you see this, and as I said, you were working with the filmmakers in regards mm-hmm. to guiding them. What kind of things did you tell them when they first came to you? I think you know the, the the really important thing to take away is that content creators who do these sort of extreme or sort of wild stuff on video. Um, for the most part, and certainly my experience has been over the past 10 years, is that they're super nice people. They're actually really nice. Hmm. And they wouldn't do it if there wasn't a demand for it, if there wasn't an audience for it. So it's not just a case of like there's this, these outliers who are creating these really crazy videos. It's 
the fact that there's an appetite for it from everybody. Um, now, obviously, you know, I, I watch some of Jake's stuff and I'm like, oh, man, be safe, man. I, the, the dad in me comes out. <laughs> yeah. don't, please don't do that. Please don't yeah. do that. But at the same time, I mean, uh, you know, Jake's well-spoken, smart guy, mm-hmm. great guy, super sweet, and uh, just happens to make crazy videos that people love. Like, you know. So in your mind, beyond them being nice folks, is it in the case of, as Jake says, he was anti-establishment, he enjoyed it, he loved it, I get that. Uh, but is there, how much of the pull is fame and fortune, mm. um, all those types of things, acceptance perhaps? What, how much of that do you think drives some of these influencers? I think it's changed and it's certainly different for each, each person. Um, but I think, you know, when I was starting, it was kind of this idea of just putting stuff out there and, and getting a, and getting some attention, getting some notoriety. And the money part was kind of an incidental, like maybe you can make money, kind of. Mm-hmm. And I think now that's first, not for everyone, certainly, but for a lot of content creators, it's more a case of like they know that there's huge fortunes maybe and, mm-hmm. and within reach. And that's pretty, you know, attractive. Mm-hmm. Um, let's go to one of the uh, one of the pieces here. Uh, Talia, let's go with uh, a piece from Jake here. Now, I want to uh, provide some background on this. You're in the back of a swerving U-Haul truck, right? <laughs> Correct. And you're wearing rollerblades. The truck itself is empty. You're the only one in there, but it's swerving, right? Correct. So you're, you're wearing rollerblades on the floor. Uh, the floor is littered with Legos and sandpaper. Am I correct? Yeah, I think a, like a little dash of like those thumbtacks, but yeah. You and thumbtacks too, just yeah. for a little dash, like it's a bit of pepper. Yeah, a little sprinkle. <laughs> Tell you, can we play that? Let's listen in. All right, so I know a lot of YouTubers have done a video like this where they get a U-Haul. We're doing it today, except uh, I'm going to be having rollerblades on in the back. We got an office chair, and uh, we're going to spice it up by putting some Legos, sandpaper on the ground. We're going to have tons of fun. It's going to be great. I hit the side of the woods so hard. Dude, I, swear, I blacked out for like a second, dude. Well, I definitely have a concussion, bro, or something. I hit it so hard on the side. <laughs> There's something special about that on radio as well. Oh, <laughs> you, can, you can. Okay, I'm in Bane listening to it. I could feel every little bump and fall there. So it, walk me through the planning for something like that, or perhaps lack of planning. I don't know. But walk me through how you would go about that. Yeah, I don't know. It's like I'll have these brainstorming sessions uh-huh. and I'll put pen to paper and then I'll kind of be like, all right, this one's funny. How easy is it to do? Do I have the budget to make that happen? Um, like what resources do we have to gather to get it done? Mm-hmm. And then I'll go with that idea. And I think that, to be honest, like that idea was probably spun up the night before. And I mm-hmm. said, okay, let's run it tomorrow. And uh, you book the U-Haul truck, you buy some Legos from Walmart, uh, sandpaper from Canadian Tire, and then you hop back there and hope for the best, you know? Maybe I'll tell the camera person, you know, maybe we should prop up the, you know, the GoPro in the, the right corner. But mm-hmm. other than that, there's no test runs. It's just throw me back there. Let's see what happens. And uh, it turned out all right. Well, for something like that, so who would comment on that? Is it are your is your audience predominantly Canadian? Is it American? Do you have it around, or is it around the world? Like who do, who who do you, who writes to you? Who responds to that? Yeah, I think it's a mix. To be honest, I think like with the kind of language and the the way I speak, mm-hmm. like I gravitate to to Canadians, and there's a good uh, follow base in the United States. But I also was checking my statistics, and I have a lot of Argentina fans and Croatia. So there's a mix-up, you know? There's the desire there's... for U-Haul content in Argentina. There you go. <laughs> there you go, right? There you go. Um, in regard, so are you able to make a living off of this? That's something I've always struggled with, right? Because of the nature of my content, uh-huh. it's hard to get brands to want to work with someone that is in the back of U-Haul trucks with rollerblades. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it's always been a struggle on these platforms trying to, to monetize myself. I've made do, and uh, I've found different avenues on you know monetizing at least – Uh, my knowledge that I've learned about branding myself and Mm -hmm. and marketing myself. But in terms of the content physically, I've never been in the profit. I've always ever put, you know, more money into it than I'm seeing back. So right now it's just to build the brand and, and sort of keep developing in regards to what you're doing. 
and that's all it ever really was for me. Like, mm-hmm. to be honest, if I can make just enough to get by off of my content, then that was more than enough for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stuart, uh, a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. I had Roy Wood Jr. on here. He yeah. was a correspondent for The Daily Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and your content is a little different in the sense that you're not a back of U-Haul trucks, but you're doing social <laughs> commentary through humor yeah. in many ways, right? Um, how much of the polarized political environment today impacts what you say and and your satire and your comedy today? I mean, I think there's some low-hanging fruit. I think you could probably go for some stuff and, know, and get guaranteed – Half uh, half of the people would be into it, and the other half wouldn't be, mm-hmm. uh, and they'd react strongly in both of those directions. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I think you want to try to create stuff that as many people as possible can enjoy. I think that's the key. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not interested in just one specific group of people and entertaining those people. I don't want to be regional. I don't want to be just Canadian. I don't want to be just whatever on the political spectrum. Um, I'd rather create content that people can share and just enjoy, and it makes life a bit better for everybody. And I think that's the key with you know, content creators in general um, is that they're creating stuff for people to like for fun like there's mm-hmm. you know it's it's rarely ever you know abusive or or negative you know mm-hmm. uh here's a a bit of uh Stuart's creation uh Stuart Reynolds of course goes under the name Brittle Star this is in regards to a news piece originally involving one of our high profile political leaders take a listen hi we noticed that some of you were unhappy when a video emerged of a politician using the public address system on a recent flight and we heard you That airline said they'd review their policy. Then that politician said if they didn't allow people to use the public address system, they'd be infringing upon freedom of speech. And we heard that too. So we're pleased to announce that anyone can now use the public address system on any of our flights for any reason. Not just politicians, birthdays, testing out some new stand-up material, marriage proposals, fart contests, divorce announcements, low-quality karaoke, Facebook Marketplace Listing Promotion. Threatening your kids that you'll turn this plane around and head straight home instead of going to Disney if they don't shut up and settle down. Whatever you want. Because that makes sense, right? Freedom of Speech Airlines. Welcome aboard. Jake, let me ask you one question. I I sometimes read about this. is this constant need for content from your followers. They're always going to be there. And as I said, you know, on average, Canadians spend about two hours a day on social media. They always want con- con- content, period. Um, a, does that wear you down? And B, more importantly to me, what impact does this have on your mental health? This constant need to create, at times, criticism, unfair criticism, uh, it, it, it can impact your mental health in some ways as well. I mean, how do you deal with some of that? Yeah, I mean, I've I've faced it myself. You have to be su- you you are being super vul- vulnerable when you're posting on these social media platforms, and um, yeah, even I've had to take a step back a few times to kind of regroup. Something that even from my personal experiences uh, with the content that I create, I put something out, and then I'm like, okay, now I got to think of the next big thing because people have already seen this part and they've moved on and they want to see what crazy thing I'm going to do next and. Yeah, it does wear you out, and I've had to take little breaks here and there. They say consistency is key, but um, you know, in terms of your mental health, that's way more important. And you know, if you're not taking those much needed breaks, you're gonna, you know, break down. You're gonna wear yourself out and uh, burn out. We've seen it with tons of other social media stars and stuff. So. I, you notice that some of them have, have done very well, and yeah. they just walk away or they take a year off because it is a constant issue yeah. uh, with scrutiny, uh, with unfair comments, all of that. Um, Stuart, same question to you because, you know, you are it's satire, mm. uh, but in, in these rather sensitive times, I don't care if you're mm-hmm. right wing, left wing, wherever you stand, uh, even you, you're going to get criticism. Sure. Right. Yeah. How do you deal with it? I, I sort of think of social media as like if, it's if you, you and I went into a bar mm-hmm. and had a drink and had a conversation, I'm listening to you. There might be like a hundred other conversations going on in the background, but I'm tuning them out. And social media is like going into the bar, you and I having a conversation, and I can hear everyone else's conversation crystal clear. So you have to kind of re-teach yourself and relearn how to tune out the important, you know, the unimportant stuff and focus on the important stuff. And I think that's just a skill that we will develop naturally. I think it'll be a case of, 
you know, we, we, we weight comments too heavily sometimes that like people respond to a tweet or something like that. And you're thinking, oh, no, does everyone think this way? No, that one person might happen to think that way, even just briefly. It might even be their main, you know, position mm-hmm. on, the, on the issue. So you just have to kind of, you know, weight those types of things accordingly. Ignore the dumb stuff and, and focus on the important stuff. Uh, Jake, are social media influencers here to stay? Or is this of the moment? Because, you know, we've had uh, lawyers on from the United States on this show on behalf of school districts suing social media companies like Facebook and Instagram because the impact it's having on mental health of children. Now, that's a separate issue. Uh, But there is a broader conversation about just a pushback from society on big tech. Not you, but big Mm -hmm. tech. Um, So within that conversation, are we going to have social media influencers 30 years from now? Or is this of the moment only? That's a great question. I think there are cycles uh, to social media platforms, content, all of that. But when you have people like Will Smith and like, you know, we're talking A-list celebrities Mm -hmm. um, using YouTube, using Instagram and stuff, a lot of the stuff that they're promoting, whether it be like an artist with an album or something, it's all on social media and they're all treating it as their main source of promoting their art. So yeah, I think it's here to stay, but I think we will go through cycles. We went through the cycle of, you know, Los Angeles. It's literally just influencers, and then mm-hmm. they all went to Miami, and now they're all going back to L.A. So there's, like, these cycles uh, of YouTubers that come and go, and we've seen the rise of TikTok and all the new influencers from there. But I think general, um, yeah, influencers, social media is, is here to stay. Uh, so if you do want to watch this film, which is directed by Burnaby's Tyler Funk, it's called Anything for Fame. And correct me if I'm wrong here, Stuart, it's available on Paramount+. Plus. It is. And just, just finishing on that, it's finishing a six-week run where it was like the number two uh, documentary on oh, the platform. Great. And, uh, and then it's going to be available to the NFB, so nfb.ca, and you'll be able to watch it for free there. And you're doing a good thing by watching it because NFB is amazing. That is great. It's called Anything for Fame. It's available on nfb.ca. CA and as Stuart said, it is for free. Stuart Reynolds, Jake Hillhouse, thank you. Thank, thank you. you so much for having me. Thank you. Now, the 980 CKNW and Global News Shaping BC's Environmental Future series, presented by Vancouver Island University. A better world starts here. Hey, welcome back to the show. Did you see that uh, TV footage the other day? BC Premier David Eby showed up for a meeting of provincial and territorial leaders. Uh, that was on Monday, wearing a T-shirt. And under his suit jacket, he was, uh, he, the, the, the T-shirt that he was wearing, it was, it, it was bearing the message, I love heat pumps. Now, lots of debate going on about carbon tax and whether or not Atlantic Canada gets a rebate. Why aren't we getting a rebate here in British Columbia? But it is pointing to a broader conversation about how we heat our home, our homes and cool our homes. Uh, heat pumps have been heralded in a major way as a major clean energy solution, but, uh, but slam it sometimes for being too costly. Now, heat pumps take energy from the air, ground and water and transform it into heat or cool air. About 200,000 BC households have installed heat pumps, according to BC Hydro. That's about 10% of its customers. Now, BC Hydro offers rebates of up to $3,000 from switching from fossil fuel uh, heating to heat pumps, which can be combined with a $3,000 Clean BC incentive and a $5,000 grant from the federal government's Greener Homes Grant, uh, depending on eligibility. So there's lots of rebates out there, but we want to learn a little bit more about heat pumps and, and the cost and regards to what they can do for your home. Well, joining me now to talk about the issue is Simon Burnath. He is the founder and CEO of FurnacePrices.ca. Simon, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm very curious, you know, uh, the Premier of British Columbia yesterday with other premiers uh, was wearing a T-shirt that says, I love heat pumps. And of course, this is all in the context of broader carbon tax debate. Uh, subsidizing uh, Atlantic uh, Canadians who have uh, or were paying a significant amount of dollars in regards to home heating oil. Uh, are you seeing a more of an uptick and people just asking about heat pumps? Oh, absolutely. We've uh, we've been seeing a huge um, sort of surge in demand, and it's it's been for a while now, uh, not just sort of uh, not just recently, but it's been sort of a growing trend. Um, We've just seen sort of more demand from consumers and more of a push from, uh, you know, contractors on the other side. So 
I think uh, the industry as a whole has really um, shifted in that direction. So how do heat pumps work? Can you explain that to our listeners? Sure. So uh, essentially what they're doing is they're using uh, refrigerants to sort of, uh, and a clever bit of engineering to, by essentially compressing them and um, expanding them, they're able to draw heat from one area and move it to another area. So uh, most of us actually, in fact, have what is essentially a heat pump in our homes in a refrigerator. So refrigerators are doing essentially the same thing, pulling heat um, you know, from inside the refrigerator and releasing it on the outside, uh, again, using a compressor and refrigerants and things like that. So it's essentially just a large version of that that's doing it for your home to both heat and cool it. Mm. And can, can heat pumps work in cold climates? Uh, they can, and they've, they've made a lot of progress uh, over the last many years um, to essentially make them more efficient and effective at lower and lower temperatures. So there are models uh, now that are on the market and are, are rated to go as low as sort of minus 25, minus 30 even. Um, they tend to be quite a bit more expensive, those models. But um, yeah, overall, they tend to sort of lose a bit of their effectiveness and efficiency the colder it gets. So in, in most parts of Canada, you would usually have some type of backup heating system just for the very coldest stretches. So if you're living in urban Canada, a, a Montreal, a Toronto, a Calgary, Vancouver, heat pumps would work for you generally? I mean, we have more of a temperate climate out here in the, in the lower mainland. Would they generally work in more of the urban centres in the rest of this country compared to, let's say, northern Quebec, Ontario, or northern British Columbia? Yep, yep, absolutely. So they, um, they certainly um, are, are becoming more popular um, in, in all those areas you mentioned. Um, of course, in the milder climates, they've been sort of more common for longer, but they are um, sort of, you know, the switch is happening and, and there is more of a push even in those um, in those other areas. There, you know, in, in the coldest parts of the country, as you mentioned, those um, there might be a bit more of a delay just because they require sort of more expensive units and might have to rely on a backup heating system for longer. So, um, but, you know, they're, they're certainly they're becoming more popular in a lot of areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, out of curiosity, what's the cost of a, of a heat pump? So it, it will depend a little bit on uh, the type of heat pump and, you know, the size of your home and, and you know, as I was alluding to, the, the kind of temperature range and all that. Um, typically, you would probably expect to spend in the ten dollars to $15,000 range, including installation. Uh, it could be a bit less, could be a bit more, again, depending on different factors. Uh, that's for an air source heat pump. So if you have a if you want to install like a geothermal one which is um where you know they're they're sort of digging pipes into the ground and using the earth's te- um you know temperature as opposed to uh air temperature so um but yeah those those tend to be quite a bit more expensive hmm. uh out of curiosity i mean i can see this in a lot of new builds and we are building are certainly talking about building a lot of housing across this country uh, because of our housing challenges, but can you install heat pumps in old and existing buildings? Are they effective that way? Uh, you can, but they tend to work best when uh, the home it's being put in is well um, insulated. So obviously that often tends to be newer homes, but um, a properly retrofitted older home, you know, that's had like the windows replaced and it has good insulation, uh, they can certainly work there as well. Um, so that, that is one of the key things, just because they don't sort of produce as high of heat as like burning, you know, fuels in a, uh, in a furnace. Um, they do tend to work best when, you know, that heat isn't just obviously, uh, being wasted in a, a poorly insulated home, but, uh, yeah, they can certainly, uh, be installed and the type, you know, between a ducted model, like if you have forced air heating, like a furnace, you would get a ducted heat pump. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have, um, say, you know, a boiler or something with radiators, then you would typically put ductless heat pumps with the interior unit uh, on the wall. Mm. Um, and for you, when you get called out or through your company, is it still mostly for new builds, though, or is it? Are you still getting uh, any getting interest from those in sort of older homes as well? Oh yeah, older homes as well. Um, so it's it's just about everyone, um, especially because there are. Um, at least at the moment, um, some government rebates available uh, for people who install one. Um, in a lot of cases, it might even be, um, you know, in the case, let's say you're you're thinking of adding or replacing your air conditioner. Uh, well, a heat pump can can work as an air conditioner as well. And so, if you're let's say do, thinking of doing that, well, putting a heat pump in is sort of 
um, you know, can not only cover the air conditioning base, but then also uh, work as your heater for a good chunk of the year and perhaps even all the year, depending on, uh, you know, your climate, as we, as we mentioned. So in your mind, uh, the shift is occurring. I think you're in British Columbia around about 200,000 people uh, that have uh, made the transition to, to heat pumps, but you're seeing that across the country. Yep, yep, certainly, um, you know, uh, uh, as I was saying, sort of in some of the milder climates, it's been a, a more feasible option for longer, uh, but now with the cold weather rated models, um, it's, they're, they're being installed kind of across the country in, uh, in Ontario and in Quebec, uh, even in, in some of the colder provinces, uh, you know, like Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, to some extent, but uh, I think that's... Um, there's a bit of a delay there. Yeah. Simon, uh, as always, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having me on. If people want uh, more information, uh, we have plenty of guides and, and uh, other details on our site at furnaceprices.ca. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.